What is up, all of you beautiful people, and welcome back to the All Eyes podcast. And Iowa has finally put something in the wind column following an annihilation. I think that's the appropriate term of the one and one, now one and two Michigan State Spartans. So we'll have plenty of great things to talk about today, obviously. But first, I would love to introduce my excellent co-host. You might know him as Thad Nelson or TNels20 on Twitter. Thad, how's the week been going for you so far? Earlier, it's a lot easier to go back and go through these and prep for this after uh, any win, but especially a big win. Uh, good to see Iowa kind of get things clicking the way we maybe expected this year and just to see it all come together at once. It's only one win, but uh, things are looking up. Yeah, and let's jump right into what a lot of people want to hear, and that's sort of the point explosion by not only Iowa's offense, but you know special teams, defense obviously 49 points in any context is something to be very happy about and it's even better when you consider that you know Iowa was able to be um, efficient on the ground effective in the past game they were able to eliminate turnovers and then like I said you know they were aided by some really terrific special teams from Charlie Jones and also a great defensive effort across across the board so you know going back and re-watching this game you know, what are some things that really jumped out to you upon rewatching? The first thing that stuck out was how effective they were running and really the change in the game plan, more like what we saw against USC in the Holiday Bolt, the use of motion, the use of shotgun runs, and the effectiveness of it. And the other thing is, message from Kirk Ferentz to Brian Ferentz was loud and clear. We're not going to have 51 passes again. And Iowa, on their first nine first downs, ran the ball. And they were sending in a message, and it was pretty effective. It wasn't always big gains, but we are going to run the ball. We're not going to pass a bunch on first downs, especially early and on incompletions, be second and 10, and now being in a spot where you kind of have to pass again. So there was a clear message there of we're going to run the ball. That's what we're going to be. And they were effective. They used uh, – jet motion very effectively, especially in short yardage. We had uh, a jet motion that was handed to Charlie Jones. He got the ball on a end around. They used two running backs in the backfield out of shotgun and used them as lead blockers. They did some split zone out of that. So just a much more creative run, run game. And it was really effective. And then they sprinkled in uh, some perimeter passing. And it wasn't a lot of deep shots but it was effective ways to move the sticks, get playmakers the ball, and let them operate. You know, and it's easy to say that, you know, everything went according to plan when every single play seems like it can do no wrong. And it just seemed like Iowa was gashing Michigan State up and down the field, especially on those first three drives. And, you know, you and I talked about one thing, though, that I, I think deserves to be highlighted. And we, tur we talked about it last week on, on last week's podcast. But – the throws that were getting Peters in the most trouble against Northwestern were sort of those in-between-the-hashes throws, sort of the anticipation-heavy throws where you're leading a guy down the field or you're, you know, you're throwing it in-between in two defenders. And, and this week against Michigan State, those throws were nearly eliminated. You know, Those were never the first progression kind of throw. It was all outbreaking routes. It was underneath stuff. It was never really in-between-the-hashes. And that was something that, you know, um, when I was looking for your Twitter, your tweet, that sort of, you know, where you chart the passes, I was really, it is, that's exactly how it came out. There weren't a whole lot of passes in between the hashes, maybe one or two. 
And, you know, against the Spartans at some point, you know, those, those throws are going to need to be made down the road. But I like the concerted effort made by the coaching staff to sort of get Petrus back on track and, you know, feeling confident this week after a really rough outing against Northwestern because we know that he can rip those outs. And we just sort of needed to see him, um, you know, regain that confidence and sort of get back in the a groove again. They opened their first pass uh, for him was a kind of a tunnel screen, a receiver screen to Tyrone Tracy. And another one, just a way to get the ball out quick, get it in the receiver's hand, something that he can catch, turn, fire. Uh, there were a lot of those said outs or some dig routes with both Tracy and Smith and ways that he can just get the ball out quick. You know, they're not going to press up on the Iowa receivers in those situations and get him comfortable. And then the other passes, you know, if they're going to be there, you take a shot if you need to, but the way they were running the ball when they got ahead, they didn't have to. So why mess with it? Just keep the chains moving. You're going to rip off a play or two because Michigan state, uh, couldn't stop anything. And so they start cheating guys up and then dropping guys back and no need to change what was working. Just keep doing the things that Petrus feels comfortable with. Yeah. And the big reason the run game was able to find, you know, so much success, especially with Goodson just knifing through defenses sort of at will. It felt like, you know, the O-line continued to ball out this week, you know, and we've been talking about it every single episode, but you know, even with, um, shot and, uh, uh, shot and and Koi Kronk out this week you know there's just so much depth and so much talented depth on this roster that it didn't really feel like they lost a step you know um Kyler shot obviously was the bigger name that couldn't play and so those reps ended up going to Cody Entz and with Cody Entz he performed like a guy worthy of getting legitimate starting reps on a, a power five caliber team at left guard and when you look at right guard, Banwart has been doing an incredible job as well. So it's really going to be interesting to see how Iowa's coaching staff continues to manage those reps, you know, once everybody's healthy. I thought Ince was particularly really good. And the way he works with Linderbaum, uh, so many times you notice they were just in lockstep. They would, you know, hit a tandem block and then one of them could work to the second level, uh, especially when, Linderbaum gets to that second level. He's so good, but they get that tandem and then Ince gets to a guy or he's able to get to a linebacker. I was just really impressed with the fluidity that those two work worked with knowing that they're not getting all the reps together. And with a reduced spring and fall, we keep bringing that up. But with that, they don't have those reps that they would normally have. And I was really impressed with that. And then Kallenberger sliding in at right tackle, I thought was did a really good job and his specialty is run block. So when they were able to go, you know, whether you go to his side or he's cutting guys down, he is a really good run blocker. And where, where Koi Kronk probably has the advantage is he is a better pass protector, but Kallenberger uh, has plenty of ability. We've said it before. Uh, He has the frame, he has the length, he has the footwork and he's, he can be nasty it's just been a, a matter of him getting that confidence and playing with it. And he did an excellent job against a Michigan State defensive line that isn't spectacular, but has some guys that have some pedigree and some ability. So it was good to see both of those guys step in because in a season like this, you just don't know when somebody's going to be out. Yeah. And, you know, you talked about Tyler Linderbaum, and I feel like 
this Iowa team has two definitive stars, not just, you know, excellent players or good players, but guys who are at the cream of the crop of their position. And it's Tyler Linderbaum. It's Davion Nixon, you know, Tyler Linderbaum, when you watch him, he does everything you ask him to do. Um, he executes tough plays out in space because he's a great athlete. He executes really tough reach blocks. You know, he's really been a catalyst for opening up this run game. And that's why you've seen so much success with it in the first, you know, three games. And moving forward, it doesn't really matter who's at right guard or left guard because, you know, like we said, there's just so much talent there. They'll be able to figure it out. And whoever pieces end up where, it's going to be a successful formula for a good run game. And it's just so nice to see that interior on the offensive line this year sort of fixed after a rough last year, too. And it makes such a big difference with Iowa's run game, having that solid center of the line. Uh, not just center, but the center and the two guards and their ability to work together because that was such a struggle last year. And you go into last year talking about, uh, you know, obviously Tristan Wirfs, but Alaric Jackson um, was coming off of a great sophomore season. And everybody expected big things out of him in 2019. And obviously a knee injury early in the season uh, really hampered that. He never was fully healthy. And he's another one that's looked really good, especially in pass protection. I mean, he is, he's a prototypical left tackle in terms of pass protection, but his run, uh, run blocking continues to improve his movements better. He's done a lot with his body. So I think all those things together, it's given Iowa an opportunity to do some different things along the offensive line, uh, whether it's with substitutions or different play design and getting guys moving. You know, the, the guards, Banwert uh, and Ints, when they were in there, those guys can move. They're good athletes. We mentioned last year uh, when Ints was a freshman, when he was in there, you saw a lot of screen game stuff with him out there in open space. So you know the coaches like his athleticism. So when you can get him to the second level or sometimes if they get him pulling around or crashing, crashing back on somebody, those are good plays for him. And they're going to open up big gaps in that line. And Goodson will make the first guy miss if he can get through the offense or through the line untouched. You know, a safety coming down the box on him probably isn't going to win. He's just so elusive. So those gaps and those openings have really spurred the Iowa offense when they can run the ball. Yeah, and I think one of the big things with in regards to the Iowa running game that has been such a massive uh, development this season is sort of Iowa's offensive line's ability to transition to the second level and effectively set, you know, good second level blocks, not just getting in the way and misdirecting, but actually setting, you know, getting locked up with linebackers and safeties that has freed up so many big runs. And a lot of these runs that you're seeing where Tyler Goodson's knifing to the end zone or knifing up the middle for 15 yards, it's because, you know, it's, it's a tray block on the outside with a tackle on tight end, or it's a deuce block with the guard and tackle you know, working to that second level. And, you know, going back to what, you, you know, we highlighted um, or you highlighted Alaric Jackson, he's a guy that we haven't really talked about a lot this year. And I think part of that is because although he's been good and we already know he's good, there's been so many other players in the offensive line that I would say have been better and have been, you know, showcasing a lot more, um, at least to talk about. With Alaric, you know, obviously nobody's running through that body. You know, there's not going to be a lot of, guys bull rushing through him and getting big sacks. But he did have his hands full with the guys like George Karloftis and, you know, scattered reps here and there. He's had a little bit of a struggle with 
just letting guys get too close into his chest. Like we know that nobody's going to barrel through him, but once you allow a defender to get into your chest, you know, that sets up an array of different things and counters that they can do to sort of shake you and, you know, apply pressure to the quarterback. And, you know, he's a good player. He's a good stopgap player. Um, he's going to have an NFL chance. But, you know, it's, I feel like he's been a little bit shaky in pass pro this year in certain reps that I would like to see him continue to improve on. I think those are all good points. And going back to the, the run game, I don't want to leave out guys like Sean Beyer and Mane Potabom because those two have been really good as well, especially on the edge uh, runs, ceiling, taking up guys. There's been times where the line's done a good enough job that they don't have anybody to block or, but when they do, they're not just like you say, misdirecting or getting in somebody's way. They're locking on and they're moving people. So there are two other guys that have been a really big part of Iowa's improved run game when they've run it. Obviously the Northwestern game, they just didn't run it enough. Yeah. And, you know, even Sam Laporta, who hasn't had amazing reps throughout his career has been steadily improving in the run game for sure. You know, he's starting to impose his will and it's starting to get, you know, at least me excited as far as, you know, his NFL future, his pro potential and what he can be at the college level too, because obviously he's a receiver, you know, he's a really great receiving tight end, but you know, if he can mix in that, that tenacity that the Kittles and the TJ Hawkinson's have had in the past, you know, we're looking at another guy who could potentially be a first round draft pick, you know, in one or two years down the road. We're seeing that steady, as you said, incremental improvement out of him. We expected him to be a threat in the past game. But for a guy, a young player like he is, to be able to step in and do that shows a lot of promise. And, you know, I think it's been some of the other, the past tight ends in the past have said, you know, you just have to decide that that's what I'm going to do. You know, I'm at Iowa. If I'm going to be a tight end, I have to block. I'm considered an extended or a sixth offensive lineman in those situations. And that part's been big because you want him on the field. You don't want to have to take him out when, when you need to run because you want his threat in the pass game. Yeah. And you know, he is so terrific in the pass game, quite weak this week, but the threat that he applies just by being out there, you can't really understate it. Um, Obviously if you can get the screen game going, that's going to be such an, he's going to be such an aid to that as well, because he really clears out those linebackers. You saw it last week. And, um, you know, we talked about how Spencer Peters has struggled with the screen uh, patterns and just, you know, getting those to be completions and not being overthrows or, you know, throwaways. And we saw it again uh, this week. There was a chance for, for a touchdown with Tyler Goodson near the end zone. And it's just he didn't have enough feather under it. And it went a little bit high for Tyler Goodson. So, you know, if they can get that screen game going, that's just an added dynamic to an offense that I really feel like um, took a major step forward this past weekend. There's been, I think, three or four times this year where those screens were called at the perfect time. And minus the pass, were really well executed. And those are due to break for a big play. But as you said, it's still, he just hasn't figured the touch and also where he wants to put it. I feel like sometimes... Um, maybe he floats it a little bit outside. I don't know if he's expecting the running back to release further or, or what, but part of it might be just he's inaccurate with it because he's kind of backpedaling. You know, I don't know if he trusts his eyes on it yet because he never really looks to it. You know, he's kind of flipping back and then just sort of floats it to a spot. So that's something, you know, when and 
or if, but probably when more likely they can hit those, those are going to be some big plays and not just first down plays, but put you in a scoring position plays. I absolutely agree. And, you know, moving on a little bit to a player that did contribute to the offense this this past week, but sort of has, I think, developed a nice little cult following in the Iowa community is Charlie Jones. And for very good reason, I mean, every single punt this past weekend, every single punt return this past weekend just felt like he could break one all the way. Um, And he did on one, on one of them. And he just seems like such a dynamic, you know, guy that they can get involved, not only on in the special teams game, but in, in the offense as well. He had an end around that went for about 20 yards and, you know, he's breaking a lot of tackles. He shows a lot of wiggle. What are you seeing out of Charlie Jones that has been made, making you excited? The number one thing with a punt returner, which is where he's been at his best, is you just have to have confidence, both, both the player and the staff. And he's back there. And one thing I've noticed a few times is he'll make contested catches and still try to get out of it. And he's not reckless with them, but there was one – it wasn't this game, but one of the prior games where the ball bounced once or twice and to keep it from going another eight to 10 yards, he grabbed it and just kind of dove forward for a yard. And while it only looks like, yeah, one yard return, it probably saved the team eight to 10 yards. So number one, he's just really confident in his ability back there to make sure he secures the ball. And the second bit with that is he has great short space quickness and power. And he gets it, and on, uh, on his touchdown and on several other returns, he starts one direction, and he's able to change directions and hit full speed again really quickly. So that's the other thing I noticed is his ability to get to full speed, which he is fast. I, I was kind of at first not sure if it's just kind of quickness, but we've, we've watched enough with the, the end around, the jet sweep, and now these punt returns. He has good top-end speed as well. So he's getting to that top end speed where he can maintain it. And that's the part that has really stood out. He's able to get to a corner and guys think they might have an angle on him and they don't. Yeah. And you know, that's, that makes, I think four players now on Iowa's offense that if you were to theoretically get the ball in their hands, they could really do damage in the past game. You know, obviously you have Charlie Jones, you have Tyler Goodson, you have Tyron Tracy, and then you have Nico Regani, who I think stand out the most after the catch. And you know, it's such an added dynamic when this is a different Iowa offense. This, you know, this isn't the Iowa offense of 10 years ago or five, even five years ago. There are so many weapons, and we keep talking about weapons and, uh, and how you get them involved each week. And I don't think we really got a definitive um, outlook on sort of how these opportunities can be, you know, properly um, categorized or sorted um, this past week. But moving forward, it's just another, you know, piece to add in there and throw in the mix and see what can sort of happen out of it. It's also just another thing those defenses have to think about. You know, if if any of those guys are in the game or now this week with Amir Smith-Marset back, uh, you know, all the, re- the receiver run game, uh, the quick pass game with the either screens or just those quick routes or a quick crosser, and being able to hit those guys in space and allow them to run is a dynamic that this offense needs because you're, you're not going to, at this point, just be able to pick up, you know, 50, 60 air yards per drive. 
You know, it's not going to be throw it 10, 12 yards downfield, catch, tackle, and do that consistently. So you're going to have to have guys making plays after the catch. And all the guys that you've mentioned have that ability. And that's something that this offense needs because it's going to be too hard at this point. You know, Petrus has the great arm. He's still working on some accuracy issues on certain passes, whereas other passes, his accuracy is fantastic. But you don't want to have to rely on air yards the whole time or ground yards if the defense starts putting eight, nine in the box. So the ability to get those guys the ball in space and let them make a play is really what this offense needs to just be more consistent. And maybe it's one to two drives per game that instead of a punt result in some sort of points. Yeah, and you know, a lot of NFL coaches in their playbooks will look at sort of these, you know, tunnel routes, tunnel screen routes, or just these little bubble screens, or even just, you know, short crossers as extended handoffs. And so these are essentially guys who are going to be aiding in the same way our nice run play would be. And when you're coupling that with actually effective running, you know, there, it just opens up such a variety of different play calls that you can actually make during a game that would be effective. Um, you know, with that said, I think that, you know, we should probably transition into talking about this defense because the defense balled out again, um, even more particular this week, you know, Zach Van Volkenberg made some plays. Um, he's a guy that we've highlighted a few times, but you know, Davion Nixon continues to be an absolute star. You know, you can really tell with defensive line play, if a guy is dominating when, you know, the offensive lineman he's going up against are ending up on the ground at a high rate. And it just feels like every single snap, you know, the guy going up against Davion Nixon is either one falling over himself because he's just trying to be way too top heavy or he's just getting thrown out of the way and getting tossed aside. And, you know, he's just so special. And I think Iowa fans really need to appreciate him while he's here because this could, I, I wouldn't be surprised if this is his last season in an Iowa uniform. Last week we highlighted, we thought the game could maybe turn with Iowa's defensive line putting some pressure on Rocky Lombardi because Michigan State's offensive line has struggled at times. But there were times it was just almost laughable. You know, Nixon was just throwing guys around. Golston was doing the same. You know, Heflin was a wall or just collapsing. And you mentioned Van Volkenberg continues to improve. And we saw... Joe Evans get in and ch have some chase downs, maybe not for sacks, but continue to put pressure. And then even, you know, Iowa was finally able to get those guys some rest. So it was good to see guys like Nixon and Heflin and Golston, their snaps under 45 because they've been, you know, that 70, 80 range in those first few games. So to get them out, but we saw great reps from the second unit. John Wagner had some nice reps. Noah Shannon does some really nice things at defensive tackle as a replacement player. Uh, and even saw a few snaps from Logan Lee, who down the road is going to be a really good player for Iowa as well. Yeah. And you know, what, what's so great about this unit is there's just so much of array of talent. You know, you have two really premier pass rushing kind of guys and athletic specimen guys in Chauncey Golston and Davion Nixon. And then you have a true, you know, clog as a two gapper in Jack Eflin. And if you can add any more dynamic, you know, pieces to that defense, whether it's rotational snaps or it's base, you know, starter snaps, it, it's just going to aid it even more because they're really covering all the bases on that defensive line. I will say, 
you know, we've talked about a number of different Iowa defenders so far through the four podcasts that we've done. And the guy that we really haven't talked a whole lot about is Chauncey Golston, which I think would have been weird, um, you know, coming into the year. He, sh- you know, we should probably be talking about him every week. And that's not to say that he hasn't been, you know, very good at disrupting early on this season. But something that's become sort of a theme, at least for the first three games, is that he's sort of having a little bit of a trouble finishing sacks off. You know, there's definitely some sacks being left on the field. And I don't want to make that seem like it's an overly negative thing because he is constantly flashing. You know, he is constantly the reason that a pocket gets collapsed or uh, tackles, you know, losing their matchup just in the most ridiculous way possible. And I honestly feel like Chauncey Golston probably puts more pressure on the quarterback than Davion Nixon does. But it just feels like once he gets there, he's whiffing a little bit too much and he's not just able to finish off that sack, which obviously is an important thing to look at. That's that next level skill. Golston is a nice player. Uh, He's really good against the run. He sets the edge as well as any Iowa defensive end in recent memory. Uh, And he's able to pressure the quarterback. He gets hurries. He gets knockdowns. He gets those things. But as you said, he hasn't been able to finish a lot of them off. Would have had one against Purdue, but that was uh, where there was a face mask called on Heflin. But he gets there and isn't always able to finish it. And, and that's the difference between a, a really good player and the great players. You know, someone like a Nixon, someone like an A.J. Epinesa, who not only gets to the quarterback but can finish. And that's just that next level of play that, for him, uh, just hasn't been consistent enough. And part of it, I think, sometimes you see he's still engaged with the linemen at that point. You know, he has great length and he's holding them off and he's not able to use the offhand to bring the guy down completely. So the next step for me that I see is his ability to, you know, stick that tackle and then drop him, release him, get him off you so he can grab the quarterback and and really get him down. Because not, not a lot of players can make the play like Dixon made a week ago where he bowls through the guy and where the guard or tackle, whoever's still connected to him, it doesn't matter. He still brings the quarterback down. Yeah, you know, I, every time I watch Chauncey Golston play, he's definitely a guy that, you know, I'm just thinking about how draft Knicks and, and sort of the draft community is going to react once he enters that process, and they're going to love him. I mean, he's a bendy kind of guy, super quick, super lengthy, has great burst. He has literally everything you're looking for. And when you see all those flashes on film where it, he's almost so close to making a sack, everybody's not thinking, oh, well, he didn't have the sack. Everybody's thinking that's a convertible sack once you get NFL-level coaching and sort of fit into that climate. And, you know, he's just going to be so special the next level. And I hope that he realizes some of that potential, you know, before his career is done at Iowa because, I mean, this could that could be a terror of a unit if he starts finishing off those sacks. Iowa could definitely lead, you know, or at least be up there in the Big Ten and all Power Five conferences per on snacks, sna- uh, sacks per game basis um, by the end of the year if he can sort of, you know, fill in that edge and Vanessa kind of role. And when he's paired up on Nixon's side, that's a tough ask, you know, for an offense. Now, even with, you know, center help three on two, that's still tough. And so now all of a sudden you have to add tight ends. You have to start chipping with running backs. And that really affects the offense's ability because that takes somebody out of the pass route or 
you know, even if they chip and then release, you know, they're not as much of a threat maybe on a third down and eight. They're just an outlet. So those two and their ability to get to the quarterback. And then, as you said, just to be able to, if he can finish some of those and then put the defense in a better position uh, in terms of just, okay, now instead of third and five, it's third and 11 and give that defense just a little bit of a boost. And as you said, I hope he realizes it while he's at Iowa because he has been a really good player for the Hawkeyes and is disruptive. And that's that next step into being a nice player and an all-conference player. Yeah, absolutely agree. And, you know, as you look at sort of this performance um, against Michigan State uh, last Saturday, you know, obviously Riley Moss had an interception. I thought he also had some really nice plays throughout the game. Um, even on the play that he gave up, you know, what was it, 50-yard pass or 50-yard completion or whatever it was, I thought his technique was pretty great. You know, he, he got on the back hip exactly how you want. He tried to find the ball. It just ended up being, you know, either unintentional or a perfectly called back shoulder pass on that 50-yard dime, and it just was a little bit out of position for him. But other than that, you know, I've been so impressed with Riley Moss this year, and I know that he was sort of the butt of a lot of jokes leading into the year because there was a lot of practice film of, you know, him getting beat by Iowa receivers, and people were like, oh, well, it's Riley Moss. But it's so unfair you know, looking at how he's played so far to, you know, keep levying that kind of criticism onto him because he, when he's showing up, he's showing up with good technique. He obviously has good enough athleticism to hang with these um, big 10 receivers and he's making a lot of plays. And I think it's start, time to start, you know, really giving him credit for being a, a reliable piece on the back end. For the most part, his coverage during this season has been really good. And the other thing with him that I like is, I mean, he only has, you know, maybe seven, eight career starts now in his third year as a player, but he has five interceptions. So he makes plays. Um, he has good hands. He, he gets in the right spots. And yeah, it was the one last week thrown right to him. Yeah. But then he made something happen with it and he was in the right spot. He was deep in his zone. His eyes were on the quarterback. So if the quarterback goes to make that throw uh, a poor decision, he's going to be able to there be able to capitalize by being in the right spot. So aligning him, you know, Hankins has been their CB one, their top guy, the guy that they'll move on to somebody if needed, but Moss has been a really effective corner on the other end. And the other thing with him is he's a very sure tackler. So if a guy does make a catch, he's finishing it right then and there. Yeah, and he also has pretty impressive length. So, you know, you just talked about his tackling. That also factors in. He's not, you know, one of the criticisms I had, I've had so far this year is, you know, we talked about this actually after the podcast last week, and I think it would be cool to include. But a lot of these blitzes that, you know, Phil Parker's calling don't really seem like their intention is to get to the quarterback. It's almost like sort of adding a third linebacker in there as a run fit. And a lot of the the people that have been blitzing or the players that have been blitzing are Matt Hankins and Julius Brents and Dane Belton and those types of players. And what I've noticed is a lot of those guys find themselves out on the edge as, you know, in that alley as a run fit defender and they're missing a lot of tackles or they're not, you know, able to take on the fullback or the tight end that's blocking them out. And then the second level area or outside the offensive line structure. And I would love to see Riley Moss, you know, get thrown in there a little bit more because, 
I really do feel like he's a guy that could insert himself up near that, you know, defensive line or the offensive line and actually make some plays just given his length and his quickness and sort of his physicality too. He's built more like a safety than most traditional cornerbacks, really. He's 6'1", probably 205, has nice length, uh, has great speed. You know, he's not maybe as – his hips probably aren't as quick as some of the other guys that Iowa's had that have been award winners. But you're also comparing him against a laundry list of Phil Parker specialties, that guys who, who win awards and then go play in the NFL. And is he one of those guys? Maybe not, but he's a really nice player. And as you said, uh, has that ability to go make some plays. The other day, there was a a play on the edge, a a run, kind of a sweep, or it might have been a a jet action. And he gets in there and he finishes the play behind the line of scrimmage. And uh, that part stands out to me because a receiver tried to block him and he just threw him off. And as you said, I think that's a great use of him at different times if you can bring him because he has closing speed and also the length to finish off, whether it's the quarterback or a running back. Yeah. And, you know, obviously there were other position groups that, you know, made plays on, on Saturday. Um, You know, Seth Benson had another, uh, another good game. I felt like, you know, chasing down to the flat, whether it was run fitting Um, Neiman had some good moments. I I still think with Neiman, I want to see it, you know, like there's just something missing with him out there that I feel like, he's not, you know, really stand out, like standing out um, in regards to somebody like Benson or even Justin Jacobs or even at times Wade Barrington. So, you know, what are you seeing at that linebacker spot? And obviously Jack Campbell's return is, I would imagine somewhat on the horizon. So, you know, how do you, how are you seeing that playing out right now? I said it before, and I don't remember if it was on the pod or afterwards. I still think they view Neiman's best spot is when he's at a, at Leo when he's outside of the box a little bit more but he's a consistent player who does one of those guys who does everything pretty well but nothing maybe outstanding so you move him into that position inside because he's smart he knows all the calls he's going to make the right decisions but he has gotten caught up in traffic a little bit I think he continues to get a little bit better with that but he's not quite as explosive as as especially Benson or or Jacobs who their first step they are quick Um, they're a little bit more like you know Christian Welch last year who had tremendous speed and but his first step was fantastic and all of a sudden the ball snapped and, and he's in the gap right away and Neiman doesn't quite have that first step that those other guys have so I still think Ideally, you'd position him maybe outside of the box a little more often. But as we've seen, Benson play play these last two weeks and play well. And as you mentioned, Campbell coming back. And, and it sounds like he's going to get some reps. I mean, he's missed quite a bit of time with Mono. So you worry a little bit about his conditioning and being ready. But I, I think we'll see him because the coaches really like him. So now – is it a rotation with those two at middle linebacker? Does that allow them to move Benson over to uh, Will a little bit? So I'm interested to see what they do there because if they can get two guys who can hit the hole right away and, and knife through the line and get through the wash, that's going to just aid that run defense a little bit more. Um, but it's al- already been a really good front seven so far. 
Yeah, and you know a little bit more about Jack Campbell than I do because I've had limited exposure to him um, just watching him, his reps at Iowa. And obviously he's a very lengthy guy in comparison to anybody that's um, stepped foot in those kind of spots for Iowa this season. Um, you know, big guy, 6'4", I believe. Um, and, you know, but the big thing that stands out about him is, is his arms. Like he just looks like, you know, a really big specimen of a guy. And, you know, what, how would you gauge his athleticism in comparison to somebody like, you know, a Seth Benson or uh, a Justin Jacobs or even a Nick Neiman? I would say, obviously, the length is what stands out. You say he's 6'4", six, 6'5", six, probably in that 240 range. He's a big guy. Uh, it's hard to put anybody that Iowa's had that's, that's really similar. You know, build-wise, he reminds me a lot of Patty Fisher at Northwestern. You know, that, that's kind of what I see him, that, his ceiling. That's the type of player he could project into. Uh, my first exposure with him was getting to watch him actually as a high school basketball player. And you'd see him, they had a, his senior year had a really nice team. I think uh, either a runner up or did well at state basketball. And even at, at the 4A level of basketball, his length stood out and his quickness and he could guard a guy and really move his feet and had great length and had top end speed. You know, he'd get a tip and he'd be flying up the court. So I, linebackers and tight ends, I think you can really evaluate on a basketball court as well. And that's one place where his athleticism, it even pops there at a, at a pretty high level at the state basketball tournament. Now, is that, how does that translate? I think pretty well. And the thing you'll see out of him, I think when he shows up is that length to a get through areas and his ability to cover sideline to sideline is going to be, be better than the other guys, I think. And, and those you know, guys like Benson especially have, have shown some nice flashes, but Campbell with his natural size and athletic ability, I think is just gonna be, he's another step ahead in terms of just his natural ability to reach spots that the other guys can't get to. Well, you know, and that, that's so exciting to hear because I think one of the big glaring things, at least on paper coming into the year for Iowa's defense, that a lot of people were concerned about was linebacker. And, you know, whether it was week one where we saw a different array of guys, we saw Way Barrington, Neiman, Jacobs, then week two and week three, we see, you know, Seth Benson and Nick Neiman get a lot of the bulk of the snaps and then Wade Barrington take up that third role. And adding in now in week four or week five, Jack Campbell. So another fresh face. And I feel like every single player maybe hasn't done exceptionally well, but, They've done so much better than I think what the projections of what people's expectations were coming into the year. Iowa had to replace quite a few guys on defense, uh, all three levels and linebacker. There were a lot of questions and not just, not just, okay, guys have graduated, but Dylan Doyle leaves in the summer uh, coming in the first game, Jack Campbell, all of a sudden is sick and he's going to miss some time. Seth Benson was out that first game. And while at the time you're like, okay, a guy who really hasn't played much, but it matters. And all of a sudden he's back in the lineup and good things happen. He shows why the coaches want him out there. And you add Jack Campbell now, and how many snaps can he play in a game like this coming back? I don't know. But if he can be out there for 20 or 30 snaps, he's going to make a difference. And he's a guy that can make 
big time plays. And his length also is really going to change passing lanes, especially now we're going to see a team like Minnesota who is RPO heavy. So over 50% of their passes come off of play action. So if you put a six, five guy there with length as he's creeping up, that just changes the angles for those passes that where they like to slip a receiver, you know, between the safety and linebacker as the linebacker starts cheating up. So you get that extra frame, that extra size and extra athletic ability. And that can all of a sudden make one or two plays go entirely differently. Yeah. And you know, a question that I think will be answered, you know, this Friday, now that we have a Friday game, which feels kind of weird, um, but a little bit, a little bit clear, you know, what are your thoughts on this Iowa team as a whole? Because I have my opinions on it just from even three weeks in, you know, I truly believe this Iowa team is better than last year's Iowa team. I think it was, I think it's on par with the 2015, 2016 Iowa team. You know, there's just certain areas like turnovers, which has been a big one early on. But as far as talent and execution is concerned through three weeks, Iowa should be 3-0 and right now. That's how I look at it. And this team has been performing so well. And there are legitimate stars on, you know, both sides of the ball. And then guys all around those stars that are excellent players or budding, you know, stars. So what is, what is your assessment you know, heading into week four about this Iowa team and how good they actually are. As you mentioned, there's pieces at every position. I don't look at any of their position, you know, depth chart areas and say, oh, they're not very good there. You feel like everywhere you look, it's like, okay, I see things I like there. I see things I like there. One thing I was surprised, I think uh, it was actually the Iowa football uh, official Twitter account posted that the the I think it's based off of depth chart is I was the fourth youngest team maybe in power five with their uh, current lineup so with a young team you're going to see some of those ups and downs so I think where I see them I see them as a team that has ability to really go out and win any game they're in this year there's nobody in the big 10 maybe minus Ohio State but I said that a couple years ago and then I will wax them in Kinnick Uh, that they can't match up with and match up pretty favorably with because at every spot they have guys that are on par with who's lined up across from them. But I also see a team that is not consistent enough and whether that's uh, inaccuracies at quarterback, whether that's sometimes not getting the ball to the playmakers, maybe based off of call or read or the mental mistakes with the penalties in game one, but I see a team that's starting to turn the corner and being able to win games in all three phases. Like the offense has the ability to go win a game. The defense has the ability to go win the game. And as we've saw special teams, both kicking, punting, and return, returning, both punt returns and Amir Smith-Marset is a kick returner, they're game changers as well. So there's n- no spot where I look at this team and say, uh, I, I just don't like what they have there. Now, does that translate to, you know, winning five, you know, five games out of this last six? Does it win translate to si- all six? Does it translate to three? I don't know. But I think they're a better team than their record. And some people would say, well, you know, Purdue and, 
in Northwestern or maybe better than people expected coming into the season. But I still believe Iowa's the better team uh, and probably the best team in the West. But we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, and it'll be a fun one to, you know, keep watching. And obviously, that's going to be answered Friday because, like you said, you know, this is you – know, as we transition to Minnesota, that's sort of the bridge that I'm going with here. But <laughs> Minnesota is an RPO tag-heavy kind of system. So the linebackers are going to see kind of a stress – or that unit is going to see a little bit of a stress that they haven't seen so far in their young careers. And, you know, Minnesota does that extremely well. And you've seen a Mohammed Ibrahim really capitalize this year. The running back Mohammed Ibrahim really capitalize on a lot of run plays this year, where he just seems like he's going untouched for the first five yards, and then he's so talented after he gets in space that, you know, I believe against Illinois last week he averaged somewhere around eight yards per carry, two hundred and forty yards, something like that. You know, he's an incredible talent. I think he's arguably you know, the third, um, third best player on that offense. So he's not even, you know, the number one guy. I would say he's probably number two. But, you know, obviously one of the big names on that offense is going to be um, Tanner Morgan, who, you know, obviously the quarterback position gets a little bit more spotlight than most other positions. But with that said, so far this year, I feel like Tanner Morgan just seems a little bit off. You know, there's something about him this year that he's just kind of sailing balls that, you know, last year he was – at least putting it on guys. And obviously they lost Tyler Johnson last year, who um, an incredible college player. And now he's in the NFL with the bucks and they still have Rashad Bateman, but Rashad Bateman is in week three and he just got his, you know, first touchdown reception this past week. So it took a little bit to get him going as well. What have you seen from this Minnesota offense so far that, you know, has, has you paying attention anyway? Well, the first is Ibrahim and just how much he means to that offense right now. I think his run, his carry totals through the three games are like 26, 41, and 31. I mean, he's carrying the workload and he's really good. He's, he's built to do that. Uh, everything they do is based off of what he's able to do. But Tanner Morgan has not been, as you said, the same quarterback he was last year to this point. Uh, he was pinpoint last year. Uh, he had that RPO system down. And part of it is, as you said, they lost Tyler Johnson. But right now they are a three-person offense. And that's pretty much it. You have Morgan, Ibrahim, and Bateman. And if you look at those guys, so uh, Tanner Morgan has 45 completions on the season through three games, 24 to Bateman. And his, of his 73 attempts, I think he's targeted Bateman 45 of them about. I mean – that's who he's looking to. And I don't blame him. He's an incredible talent. He is a great receiver, but they are limited a little bit this year with, with they, they have one running back that's getting almost all the carries. They have one receiver that's getting almost all the receptions and on the offensive line, they've struggled. And that's the big thing that's jumped out when I've watched them is Tanner Morgan's been sacked seven times. He has two interceptions. Uh, he's getting pressured more than he did last year. And when I get ready, when I'm watching this and thinking, okay, what might happen? It's another game where the first thing I think of is Iowa's front four has a massive advantage in this game. Now, does that RPO system counter that a little bit? Yeah, because guys can't just pin their ears back and go to the quarterback or they can't, you know, just 
focus on the run game. The defense has to work together. But Iowa's defense on the front and at the point of attack has a big advantage. And if you can take those front four and clog up those initial lanes, that's going to totally change what Minnesota does. And if you make them a drop back passing team, that's not what they want to do. And I don't think they can be very effective doing that. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I think that their key to this game is going to have to, you know, be to find ways to run the ball. Um, I do believe that their best player on offense is Rashad Bateman. Um, And, you know, when you look at a guy that Iowa faced earlier in the year in David Bell, you know, Rashad Bateman and him are very similar in the fact that they have great feet. Uh, they're physical. They can make contested catches and get separation. And so I'm very curious to see how Iowa looks to defend Rashad Bateman because this is the second, this is their second go around facing an elite guy, a wide receiver who is going to get a lot of volume. And, you know, if it goes bad early and he's getting 10 yards a pop, you know, out there at the receiver position, they're going to keep going for it. You know, it's not going to be like Minnesota is going to you know, all right, it's working, so now we can set up other things. They're going to keep trying to four-speed Rashad Bateman because, like you said, it's a three-person offense right now, and they don't really have the offensive line play to try these, you know, long, drawn-out misdirection plays. Um, it's just not going to happen like that. And, you know, if, it, if Iowa's defense can continue the trend of, you know, slowing the run game and stopping Mohamed Ibrahim, it's going to be interesting to see how Minnesota sort of adjusts on the fly to that. And that's the thing. They're going to have to build that first wall because if Ibrahim is untouched through that first line and he's on to linebackers, he's on to safeties, he's a load to bring down. And, you know, if they get that offense turning where all of a sudden they're picking up easy first downs and, oh, now it's second and four and you can hit Bateman on, on a big play or you can keep running that RPO system and get those short yardage and where you're not behind the sticks. So Iowa's challenge is going to be win first down. That's going to be so important in this game. You have to win first down. You have to put them in a second in eight plus situation and limit their options, you know, because at that point you can start scheming uh, ways to take away Bateman. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see Iowa get, go to some of those zone blitz looks where they're dropping um, alignment back into the, the shallow area where Bateman to Bateman's side, especially to try to take away the quick passes or whether it's a slant or the quick digs. Um, I could see Iowa going to that, but if you want to do that, you have to put them in pass situations and you've got to keep Ibrahim from being effective on first down, especially. Yeah. And, you know, as, as you look at um, sort of Iowa's offensive approach in this game, you know, it'll be interesting to see how much stress is put on Spencer Peters. Cause like we said, there were no in-between-the-hashes kind of throws um, this past week, and that's where I feel like this Minnesota defense is most susceptible. So, like I said earlier, you know, those throws are going to eventually have to come. It was nice that he didn't have to make those kinds of throws last week where I was, you know, at 42 points. But when you come down to tight contests in Big Ten play, you know, in-between-the-hashes throws are going to need to happen. And Minnesota's linebacking core and safety play – just seems very out of sorts this year. And it seems very, it seems like at a point that you can really attack, especially with Sam Laporta and even Brandon Smith and even Amir Smith Marset. I feel like this is a game where Amir could have four catches for 180 yards and two touchdowns, and I wouldn't be surprised. I would love to see sort of 
you know, you know, you don't want to see 50 throws a game. And I think that's been established through those first two games, but Spencer Petrus's workload and what he's asked to do and bring to the offense is going to have to take a step up this week compared to the Michigan state game. Minnesota isn't going to let Iowa run the ball the way Michigan state did. And that said, I don't think their front four is particularly outstanding. I think Iowa, again, along the line of scrimmage, has a pretty clear advantage. So does Minnesota start bringing extra guys into the box? Do they, or do they drop guys back and say, okay, uh, Spencer Petrus, you're going to have to beat us picking up seven, eight yards at a time, and you're going to have to fit them into these windows. We're going to sit back in zone, and you're going to have to hit windows. The guys I think could have really big games, you mentioned Laporta, but I think uh, Tyrone Tracy is the guy I'm looking at this week. I just have a feeling that he's one of those guys that, that can play a little bit outside, but also get inside and make a catch and make a guy miss. And their defense, their defense just hasn't been very good, obviously. If you look at the point totals they've given up outside of Illinois last week, and, and let's be honest, Illinois was on their third or fourth string quarterback and Illinois just hasn't looked much of anything so that doesn't say a lot you know that's the first time they've even been able to make any progress defensively but the Maryland and Michigan games uh, they were really poor to be honest and that's the best way I can describe it so he's the guy that I think could really break out I could see him you know making a making whether it's a deep play or you know, hitting one of those crossers and either outrunning a guy or just making a guy miss. So I think he could, and Regani could be the guy that fits into some of those holes. If they're going to sit back in zone, he's the guy that Petrus is going to look for to find a spot, settle down, make a contested catch. You know, it'd be so great to see Tracy get going this weekend because, or this Friday rather, because. He just, you know, he hasn't really shown up this this year so far, and and that's not his fault. You know, there's been limited snap counts. You know, the hierarchy at wide receiver has sort of been Amir, uh, Nico Regani, and Brandon Smith ahead of him. So, and and even last week on a short crosser, it hit right off his hands and bounced to Brandon Smith. And when I saw that, I was just thinking, you know, his snaps the rest of the game are probably going to be limited. He's probably not going to see much, you know, playing time. But obviously, Iowa ended up building a lead. And so he got snaps up a little bit, but a true breakout game where he's a catalyst to this offense opening up in, in a competitive context would be so great to see because heading into the year, he really just strikes me as a guy that can do everything. You know, he, I, I definitely want to see him get the ball after the catch uh, a lot more because he's so physical. He's so quick. He's so explosive. You know, if he can just limit those drops, he could really be a, a serious weapon for Iowa this season and moving forward you hit it right on the head. So I think guys like him, and as you mentioned, I could see Amir having a great game, kind of a similar role, whether it's, you know, I, I just have a feeling this is the week we see one of those deep passes connect because I think this line can protect Petrus. I could see a play action, especially if Iowa gets the run game going and all of a sudden Minnesota has to start cheating guys up where, where you hit one of those, you know, it might be out of a max protection, you know, where they, I could see him going for one of those play action, uh, bring one of the guards around to pick up an edge rusher and, and going for a deep shot. I think we're going to see something like that, that this week. 
so I guess with that said, you know, um, I was another favorite this week by three points. Um, you know, how do you see this game playing out on Friday? Because we don't have a lot of time, you know, uh, to wait around for, you know, a Saturday kick. It's happening Friday night and it's going to be, it's going to feel a little bit different, but you know, it's another projected close contest. So how do you see it sort of playing out? I just think Iowa has offensively um, an advantage and defensively has the advantage up front. That said, I think Minnesota is going to make some plays that with Bateman and Ibrahim, they're going to make some plays offensively. And that's not an offense that Iowa is going to be able to shut down. In my opinion, it's going to be the best offense they've faced so far this year uh, in terms of two playmakers. Outside of those two, I don't think they're as good as – they're not as good as Purdue along the front line. But they have two guys at, at running back and receiver. And then a quarterback who has a history who last year was really good, um, who hasn't been quite as good this year, mostly because of line play. So it's a team that can make a big play, whether it's on the ground or through the air. And I wouldn't be surprised if they make one of those. But I just think Iowa has too many weapons and defensively has too many players. Um, and I think they get the, get a win. I think it's one that's going to be pretty close. And then down the stretch, I think Iowa gets, you know, has a, a three to seven point lead and then gets a turnover, gets that clinching score late and ends up winning by nine. Yeah. You know, I don't think last year, uh, last week's Iowa's, Iowa performance against Michigan State was a fluke. I think that's what's to come because I feel like that's what we've been waiting for. And the first two weeks were sort of like, you know, it, it felt like we scored more than 20 points in those games. It felt like we should have scored around 30, 35. And so this week, I really do feel like Minnesota is a weaker defense than both Northwestern and Purdue. And I think that I was going to put up points on this defense I'm going to say they're going to score in the 40s. I think it's I think another back-to-back week of 40-point outings, and it's really going to get the buzz flowing around this team. And I don't think that Minnesota can really hang with that. Uh, I just haven't seen a whole lot from their offense outside of Mohamed Ibrahim that would really show that they can really keep up with that kind of high output and scoring. So I really do think it's going to end in something like 42-28 or 42 to 24, something like that. I really do think it could be a blowout this week, but I've said that at, at a couple of weeks and it wasn't last week when I said it. So I've been, you know, shaky. I'm, I'm like one and two, and I think I've got every single spread wrong. So take that into account. The thing that, that I could see it heading that way is let's say Iowa goes out and gets a stop and gets two scores and and gets on top. And then all of a sudden, you know, if you can get that lead on, on Minnesota and make them a passing team, just like what happened to Michigan State, when you make them one-dimensional or force their hand a little bit, that's totally going to change it. And same thing if all of a sudden their defense, defense can't key on the run or key on the pass, if you've got a lead and you have a, the options to be creative, I think that really opens up things for this Iowa team. And I would not be shocked to see that happen because – there are so many playmakers on offense. There are several guys that can score on any play. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, I, I do think that this Iowa team is going to be fun to watch the rest of the year. And like you said, there's just so many players that make, can make a play that I feel like the big plays that we really haven't seen the big splash plays 
are going to eventually come and happen and be a regular occurrence week in and week out. And, you know, that's something to look forward to, obviously. Um, as far as a Friday night game goes, you know, what are your thoughts on, on Friday night Big Ten games? Well, it's kind of one of those necessary evils. I don't love it, but if you want that, that cash to keep coming in and you want all those facilities and you want the things that can help you win recruiting battles and, and get guys coming in and make them keep them and make them happy, uh, that's part of it. So I don't love it, but uh, at the same time, that's where we're at with this one. And, you know, it's also going to be kind of fun to have Florida Rosedale highlighted on a night like this when there are other things, you know, so we get to have this primetime game and that's a plus because historically this is a great rivalry with great tradition for a long time was the season finale. So it is really cool in that sense to get a primetime game. I think it's FS1 and get that type of coverage will be a lot of fun because a lot of people are going to tune in. And if you see Iowa go in there, guns blazing and put up another 40 point, uh, you know, things are, are going to be heading in the right direction for sure. Yeah. I think last week's FS1 game was on, on Friday was uh, uh, Boise state and BYU and the Twitter world went ablaze for BYU's quarterback, Zach Wilson. So, I mean, maybe Spencer Petrus throws four touchdowns for 500 yards this week. And everybody's thinking he's the next, you know, Peyton Manning or whoever else. <laughs> but, you know, with that said, um, we want to thank you guys for checking out another podcast from us. We've enjoyed putting these together. We've really, you know, grown as, um, you know, people who like to interact with each other. We do it during games. Now we do it outside of games. It's been really fun to watch this thing grow and you guys have been continuing to check it out. So I really appreciate that. We really appreciate that. And, you know, Thad, do you have any last words for the people out there? Have the pork chops and bacon ready Friday night because we're going to be cooking. Love it. <laughs> See you guys.